America America You are so grand and golden Oh, I wish I was deep in America tonight Hello, America. Katie Wilson here. And today we are excited to bring you a special candid interview with one of the leading voices of the environmental movement. Back in 1989, at age 27, Bill McKibben wrote the first ever book on climate change called The End of Nature. And he's written prolifically ever since, producing another dozen or so works on the topic. In fact, his latest book, Falter, was released just this year, and we highly recommend it for anyone interested in a planet Earth worth inhabiting. And good news, it's not all bad news. So Bill supported me early on in my campaign for Congress, and honestly, I'm forever grateful and humbled by his support and insight. I'd also say that McKibben is one of the most important thinkers and writers alive today. He spent most of his life translating what well, physics states so clearly into something humans can digest and ultimately turn into action. So we sure hope you enjoy this one-on-one -on -one interview with writer, author, educator, and outspoken advocate for planet Earth, the one and only Bill McKibben. I actually, since I've been around from the beginning of, I wrote the first book about climate change, I can sort of watch how it changed. At the beginning, there was nobody who said, no, this isn't real, because why would you? Um, you know, scientists had explained what was happening, explained the mechanism that the molecular structure of CO2 traps heat, uh, that we were obviously producing lots of CO2. Um, you know, the Republican president, George H.W. Bush, said, we're going to fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Um, so it was a straightforward beginning in the late 1980s, uh, until very early on, and we now know this from lots of good investigative reporting, the fossil fuel industry decided that they were going to make it an issue, uh, mm -hmm. that the threat to their business model was such that they were going to have to, uh, come up with, uh, some way to, to keep change from happening. And the way they hit on was to try and get people to doubt the reality of climate change. And the people who they hired to do this work were the people who'd done literally the same thing with tobacco and cigarettes mm -hmm. in the decade before. Just made stuff up, you know. Propaganda. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and the fossil fuel industry was the richest industry on earth. So it had unlimited amount of money to spend on propaganda. And what you see now is is the result of that. I mean, there's not a climate scientist on Earth who thinks we're just having a natural, normal climate shift. Every one of them understands the that, you know, that when you uh, dramatically raise the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, there's no possibility except that it'll get hotter because that's how physics works. But there's plenty of people who believe that because they've been told it by a, you know, endless series of uh, uh, institutions and politicians propped up by the fossil fuel industry. 
So this is interesting because although this is, you know, in my opinion, certainly the most important scientifically based conversation we're having in this country right now, maybe in the world, um, there's still doubters and perhaps it's not about reaching them. Perhaps the question is really, how do you get through to those in power? And is that possible? Like, what does this might look like? So so the first thing to be said is there aren't that many doubters. The polling by this point indicates that something like 70% of Americans are pretty clear what's going on, Uh, which, you know, for Americans about any topic is not bad, really. Um, And and the... uh, not everyone may understand the urgency of it, but people have the broad outline and that number continues to grow and it becomes a more and more salient issue all the time. I mean, at this point, it's the most important issue for Democratic voters heading into the primaries. You can't, in my experience, there's very little way to persuade the remaining 30%. It's not like you're going to hand them another study and they're scales will fall from their eyes. Right. Data just doesn't work here. It's an ideologically, you know, an ideological sense of things, not a uh, one based and grounded in, in reason. Um, sometimes there are institutions that people care about that can help persuade them. So for people, I've over the years discovered that for people who hold the military in high esteem, the fact that the Pentagon takes this seriously sometimes is enough to get people to uh, reconsider their opinions. For people who take their faith life seriously, a diminishing number, um, sometimes the same thing happens. You know, the fact that the Pope has been more outspoken on this than any other issue um, probably has persuaded some percentage of Catholic America uh, uh, to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, the real job is to get some significant percentage of that 70% actually willing to organize to do anything about it. You know, we've come to think there's been a lot of literature in the last few years, and I write about and teach about this some. We've come to think that if you can get 4 or 5% of a population really engaged in a fight, you'll generally win, Um, which doesn't, at first blush, doesn't sound right. You'd think you'd need 51% or something. But in fact, apathy cuts both ways. So if you can get some significant percentage of people who care about climate change to actually be really vocal and in the streets and pushing their Congress people and whatever else, um, um, that's powerful. We're probably at one or 2% now. Um, you know, but we know from the past when this has happened. So 1970, Earth Day, 20 million Americans were in the streets, we think, about 10% of the then population. And that was enough. You know, Richard Nixon had no choice, though he could care less about the environment, to sign the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and the Endangered Species Act and everything else. So that strikes me as the, the real key. And I tend to tell people, not to spend an immense amount of emotional energy trying to, you know, I, I tell young people all the time, it's not worth ruining Thanksgiving dinner trying to <laughs> persuade your, you know, old uncle to think what you do about climate change. Um, it, you know, if you can't hold 
back, just say, you know, you may not believe in global warming, but global warming believes in you, you know, and leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. So this, that's very interesting, you know, because the one, I do have one question though, that I feel like when this comes up, or at least in my mind, it makes sense that if I am going there with somebody and on the campaign, I did go the military route that seemed to be really effective in a conservative area like this. And I believe it was to a certain extent. Um, But it, it just seems logically and emotionally to me as if everyone can relate to the idea of what we're leaving for the next generation I mean, have you seen I, in terms of data that that so. was... One would sure hope so. That's what every instinct would seem to tell us. But it's weird. I mean, the polling data and everything makes it abundantly clear that it's the you know oldest people in our society uh, who are acting most selfishly and most defensively. Yeah. And, you know, that's why we have Donald Trump. So I, I, I never know quite what to, I mean, there's obviously tons of exceptions. I was out at Chautauqua the other day to give a talk in Western New York, and it was, you know, 4,000 older people mostly on hand to listen, and they were remarkable and couldn't wait to be engaged and involved and so on. But taken as a whole, um, people, I, I'm, I'm, I, I worry that that, um, professed love for one's children and grandchildren, whatever, is somewhat more rhetorical than than real. Well, there's that very kind of stubborn thing that, that many people fall back on, which is, in my experience, <laughs> you know, what I know to be true is that this isn't a problem, which I think is how a lot of people from an older generation who aren't kind of getting behind the the momentum here feel they're like, well, I, I just don't see it. And I, we've been doing things this way and it's been fine. It worked for me. Uh, you know, how do you like taking that into consideration? How do you speak about like, what is the future of air travel? You know, what do you say? Like, what is it? What do our skies look like over the next 30 years? Are we telling people that you're just not going to be able to get on a plane or is uh, there I don't know. like a I mean, We definitely should be doing it a lot less and not for frivolous reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause there's, cause it's a big, <laughs> big, big plug of carbon that it sticks in the atmosphere. Um, but I, you know, to me, the, the, the real, I mean, we can't balance the carbon books at this point, one person at a time. That's if it happens, that's not how it's going to happen. I mean, what we need are people engaged in the political fights to change the basic ground rules. And, you know, if we can do that, then other change will follow fairly easily. But so is that the call to action? Is it to, to engage be, politically? Be less of an individual, join together with others in movements large enough to make a difference. Because, And here's the irony, of course. 30 years ago, uh, we could have made a number of very modest changes that would have had big effect. A modest price on carbon 30 years ago would have been a really good idea. It would have, you know, begun to steer the ocean liner that is our economy three or four degrees to port, and 30 years later, we'd be in a whole different ocean, you know? But instead, thanks to the Exxons of the world, we went, we didn't just go full steam ahead, we accelerated. And so now, just because of the way that physics and math work, we're at a point where the changes we make have to be 
quite large. They're going to have to come faster uh, than is comfortable for our economy, our society, our, us as individuals, so on and so forth. Um, and so now the job is to make those changes. Yeah, and and yet yes, and but how do we communicate around that with, like, say, Republicans? I mean, I've interviewed and spoken to some really incredibly smart and reasonable Republicans who look at the Green New Deal and they're just like, "This is ridiculous." Like, what yeah, do well, you? I mean, I think one of the first things you need to say, just to be honest, is to say, "Yeah, the reason why it's harder than you want it to be is because you kept us from doing anything of when we could have." And mm-hmm. so don't be surprised. I mean, I mean, it's like saying to your, you know, oncologist, well, you know, the surgery for lung cancer seems really extreme, um, <laughs> you know, and the oncologist, um, probably oncologists have been trained not to say, well, I did tell you, you know, stop smoking cigarettes 40 years ago, but you didn't pay any attention. Right, because that shuts down the conversation, and someone gets defensive, and then there's kind yeah. of like well, yeah. So, so, I, and and uh, sure, I mean, but but in this case, we're talking about uh, you know, I, I mean, I've always thought we just should talk honestly with each other about where we are and yeah. what it is we're doing. And in this case, I mean, the reason that it's not a normal political issue is because normal political issues are all about compromise between different groups of people. So, you know, you run a business and you'd prefer to pay your workers, you know, $3 an hour if you could get away with it. And, uh, you know, I think that people should have a decent living wage and it's probably, you know, $25 an hour. So let's meet in the middle at 15 and we'll fight it out again in a few years, you know. That's sort of how systems work. They make for gradual change that which is by far the best way for human beings to change is gradually and, you know, uh, so on. The reason that climate change isn't like that is because it's fundamentally not a negotiation between Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives or anything else. It's fundamentally a negotiation between human beings and physics. And physics is utterly uninterested in any of that stuff. It doesn't yeah. care about spin. It's not interested about where we are in the business cycle. It doesn't, you know, worry about hurting your feelings, uh, you know. Doesn't care how many clicks it gets. Yeah. It just does what it does, you know. So so that's why this is hard politically. There's no ideological reason that it should have been hard for conservatives. I mean, if anything, conservatives are you know, theoretically interested in conserving things. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's never been a more large example of radicalism than changing the composition of the atmosphere of the planet uh, in such a way that scientists have told us, and now we can see, that we're drastically altering the climate on which we all depend. That's radicalism of a super high order. And in a different age, conservatives would have been, um, you know, a, a partner in doing something about it. But in our age, the fossil fuel industry more or less purchased the Republican Party. Uh, the Koch brothers were the biggest purchasers, but everybody else joined mm-hmm. in, too. And and now that's a kind of wholly owned subsidiary of that industry. And 
So, I, you know, I, I don't know how you're going to convince people and, you know, Republican politicians. My guess is they're going to have to be beaten. Um, and my guess is that climate change will actually be an important issue on which they are beaten because with each passing year, Mother Nature makes it yet clearer how, what, you know, how foolishly we're behaving. Yeah. I mean, in, in my idealistic mind, I always hoped, you know, let's say for the last five or 10 years, since I was really aware of this, you know, as someone who's still pretty young, um, that the markets would perhaps kind of, um, save the day here, that it would just become so obvious that the only, um, future gain financially would be in, you know, sun and wind, and that that would just, so in that's an interesting definitely way, starting itself. to happen. Yeah, is There's it going to no happen fast enough? That that's happening. I wrote a long piece for the New York Review of Books earlier this year on this topic, and I'm hard at work on a thing at the moment for the New Yorker on sort of the same grounds. Um, it won't happen fast enough on sheer economic logic. Like it's already it's abundantly true at this point that uh, sun and wind are the cheapest way to generate power around the planet. If you're starting up a new power plant, then you'd be crazy not to run it on renewable energy. Mm -hmm. But we have huge amount of built <laughs> infrastructure all over the place. Right. Um, and, and, and we have something like $25 trillion worth of assets in the ground in the form of coal and gas and oil held by the fossil fuel companies that they're determined to get out of the ground. That they're not going to walk away from. Yeah. Not without a fight. And so that's what the fight is. It's obscene to watch, say, the big banks continue to lend huge amounts of money into the fossil fuel industry, even in the wake of Paris you know, increasing the amount of money they lend to the fossil yeah, fuel industry. Yeah, it's absurd. You th you think that the, that money would still, I mean, the, wor the, the best worst case scenario would be that the same people remain in power, but invest in a way that leads us all out of this mess instead of deeper into it. Um, but, you know, I, I just like, why, why aren't there strings attached? Why isn't it like, listen, we will, we will continue investing in you, but you have to use this towards something that's going to take us into the future as opposed to like end our world. I mean, it just seems yeah. and that's, so logical you know, there's, to me. There's but. little signs of that slowly starting to happen, especially with Europe. The huge fossil fuel divestment campaign we ran, rerun, has kind of done more than anything else to kind of leverage things in that direction. I mean, the, yeah. the other thing that's always worth remembering about climate change that sets it apart from other political issues is it's a time test. If we don't solve healthcare this year, lots of people will suffer as a result. But ten years from now, it won't be harder to solve than it is now. Right. You know, but that's not. I mean, once you've melted the Arctic, no one's got a good plan for freezing it up again. So, is there any like what is the facet of this issue that you feel like more people need to hear? Is there any kind of like hidden gem here or something that's not well, getting the airtime? Well, here's deserves? the thing that's, here's the thing that is very powerful across party lines and things. Everybody likes solar power. Um, it pulls at the same very high level among Republicans, Democrats, and independents for different reasons. I think I, in my experience, conservatives 
tend to like the idea of solar panels on their roof because then, you know, they'll never have to be connected to anyone ever again. And <laughs> and liberals tend to like it because it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's hippy-dippy and comes from the sun <laughs> and whatever. Um, but who cares? I mean, that kind of stuff, that that's a place to make very common cause. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Uh I'm, you know, I, I'm, I like the idea of power from the sun in part because it topples the, uh, I mean, mostly because it keeps us all from burning up, but partly because it topples the, some of the power sectors in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, a fair amount of the inequality in our country and the world comes from the fact that a small number of people control access to coal and gas and oil. They live mm-hmm. on top of it or have leased it or whatever else. The sun and wind aren't like that. They're pretty ubiquitous. So there'll be plenty of rich people from the renewable energy field, but they're not going to be like the Koch brothers with the kind of chokehold on our political life. So I don't know whether that's conservative or... I mean, I personally, I tend to think of myself as uh, as pretty conservative. I don't love change. I like, I think we'd be very smart to keep uh, uh, the world uh, that we were born into operating at least physically the way that it did when we were born, because it worked better then. Well, that's really interesting because after meeting you and getting to know you a, a little bit, I would agree. And yet, you know, you go out and you get arrested or you make some noise and you put yourself in the spotlight and all of a sudden you're, you're a crazy lefty activist. And it's just so funny how the media allows spin to kind of, you know, that, that becomes the story. As yeah, it just becomes very, it's very easy yeah. for everyone to, you know, that's just the sort of easy categories for people to fit themselves into. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of a kind of laziness on the part of the uh, media um, that we're all kind of prone to, but I, it, it never strikes me as, I mean, and, and I actually think it doesn't really capture what's going on. I'm, I'm taken by the fact that at least in rural America, where I've spent all my life, I know a lot of people who were, uh, uh, who could easily have voted for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> and It was and, the funny equalizer in rural America. It was so interesting. I remember hearing that on the news and just being blown away, and then I immediately got it. I mean, I, I think that describes two-thirds of the people I know in Johnsburg, you know. I would say the same up here, yeah, in the whole region. Um, really interesting. I, I don't know what that <laughs> What, what that, that means. means. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, what's really useful in just in thinking about climate change is just reminding oneself in the end that it, that your opinion is actually of so little interest to <laughs> physics and chemistry that... <laughs> That it, You're just not I mean, that I have important. To remind myself all the time, like this is in the end, this is a question around, you know, how, uh, you know, how molecules uh, interact with uh, the sun's radiation. You know, that's that's what's happening, <laughs> and so that's what we got to get right. Okay, so even though some people just don't care to hear that, or believe that it's true or happening for the rest of us what is 
the advice? And I'm sure that this may be a really boring question, but like, is it is it to reduce your carbon footprint or is it to get involved in politics? Is it well, you both? should definitely reduce your carbon footprint for all kinds of reasons, including that it will help. But don't do it expecting that that's how we're going to solve this. We don't have the time left to do that um, um, that way by itself. So, you know, my house is covered with solar panels. I'm proud of that. But I don't try to fool myself that that's the most useful contribution I can make. Mm -hmm. Uh, The key is to become politically engaged in movements like 350.org or if you're a student, Fridays for the Future or, you know, uh, anybody who's really taking on this issue at the core, uh, trying to make those changes in the basic ground rules that give us a chance. The Green New Deal is the first piece of legislation we've had that actually approaches this question on the same scale as the scale of the problem. So that's good. This special interview edition of The Multiverse was produced by Katie Wilson, with editing and sound design by Ian Carlson and mix master by Chris Burns. Theme music is America by artist Bill Callahan, with This Land is Your Land rendition by Yours Truly. More information about this podcast, including additional episodes, can be found at www.the-multiverse.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Talk honestly with each other about where we are.